Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Carter. And I'm Hannah. And this week we'll be discussing the 1974 attempted massacre of the Williams family in rural Florida and the evidence that convicted an 18-year-old young man. This is the story of the Williams family from Hawthorne, Florida. On the evening of Sunday, November 24, 1974, Mr. Wiley Williams, who was a 29-year-old married man with three sons, left for his night shift at the hospital, not knowing that when he returned home, his wife and children wouldn't all still be alive. Wiley and his 27-year-old wife, Anna Louise Williams, born Anna Louise Peppers, were a young black couple that lived in Hawthorne, Florida with their three sons, Wiley Jr., age 10, Harold, age 9, and Andrew, age 7. Wiley and Anna had only lived in this particular home for the past nine years, but they both grew up in the area. In fact, Anna's mother lived just across the road. Anna had given birth to their oldest son, Wiley Jr., in April 1964, when she was just 16 years old, before she and Wiley Sr. got married six months later. They had three sons in three short years, and Wiley Sr. worked two jobs to support his family. It wasn't easy. Most days, he worked from 8.30 in the morning until after 2 the following morning only coming home with enough time to sleep before doing it all over again. The Williams family lived in Hawthorne, Florida, which is a small rural town just 16 miles east of Gainesville and the University of Florida. Wiley's second job, his night job, which he worked from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., was actually at the University of Florida's Shands Teaching Hospital in Gainesville, which is where he was the night of November 24, 1974, when his family came under attack. According to Mr. Williams, when he left for his night shift at the hospital that Sunday evening, his family was happy and healthy, and the doors were locked behind him. What happened next was a nightmare. A telephone operator for Southern Bell Telephone Company testified she was on duty and working the switchboard on the night of November 24, 1974, and about 10 or 15 minutes after midnight, the Hawthorne switch on her telephone panel lit up. When she plugged in to receive the call, She heard screaming and a voice saying, please don't, I won't tell anyone. She further testified she could hear children screaming in the background, but was unable to get a response from the caller. She instinctively and immediately relayed the call to the Alachua County Sheriff's Office emergency number. However, she continued to keep her key open and listen to the screaming and crying. From the moment the call was relayed from the telephone company to the Sheriff's Office, the call was taped. Attempts were made to have the call traced so the exact location of the screaming could be determined. Unfortunately, the attempts were unsuccessful. The nerve-wracking screaming, pleading, and crying lasted approximately 23 minutes until there was total silence on the phone. Next, you could clearly hear Mr. Williams arrive home at about 2.35 a.m. and hear his cries and moans of, Anna, Anna, oh God, what happened, boys? Who did this to you? and his further responses as he would locate each member of his family in turn seeing their bloody condition. 
Mr. Williams got off work at approximately 2.05 a.m. on the morning of November 25, 1974, and arrived back at his home in Hawthorne approximately at 2.35 a.m. He noticed lights on in the house and the front door open. As he went into the house, he first saw his youngest son, Andrew, bloody. He looked into his and his wife's bedroom and saw her lying on a bed and a mass of bloody sheets and pillowcases with the telephone off the receiver lying at her side. After a frantic search, he located the other two boys who were bloody and cut up. Having determined that his wife and his oldest son were dead, Mr. Williams, without disturbing anything, ran to a neighbor's house and had the sheriff's department summoned. Lieutenant Hansen, the shift commander for the Alachua County Sheriff's Department, arrived at the Williams' home, followed by two other deputies from that office. As he entered the front door, he saw the blood on the floor. He observed Mrs. Williams on the bed with a sheet across her from the waist down, her nightgown pulled up around her neck, and the telephone off the hook lying beside her bloody body. He then found their 10-year-old son, Wiley Jr., dead on the bunk bed in his bedroom. He located the two younger children in the house, cut and bleeding, but still alive. The scene was secured by the crime scene investigator, and the criminal investigation commenced immediately. Blood was observed on the ground from the front door out to the fence some 33 feet away, apparently left there by Wiley Jr., as his assailant chased him out of the house and dragged him back inside. Harold and Andrew were given first aid at the scene and taken to the Alachua General Hospital for treatment. A neighbor, Mr. Boyer, testified that on the evening of November 24th, he watched a television program and some news and went into his bedroom. This neighbor lived about 100 feet away from the Williams house. After being in his bedroom for some time, he heard children screaming, which, according to his testimony, was back around the Williams house. He looked out and saw lights on in the house and the front door open. The screaming continued. The oldest boy, whom he recognized as Wiley Jr., ran out the front door hollering and screaming, being chased by a larger boy, whom he did not recognize. The larger boy drug the Williams boy back into the house. He continued to hear screaming from the Williams home, but for whatever reason, he did not investigate to determine the cause. Yeah, this just pisses me off. I don't know on what level of mind your business you have to be on to, to look away from that, but that is... Because that could have changed everything. Like, they might have all still been alive at that point. The police are listening to this, and they're desperately trying to trace the call and figure out where this is happening. If Mr. Boyer, their neighbor, had just called in and said, yeah, it's the Williams house, you know, this all could have been resolved 50 years ago. And, and I get it to some degree, not wanting to draw attention to the police. You don't want the police in your neighborhood. I, I totally get that. And, and I guess hindsight is 2020, but yeah, it's, it's really frustrating to, to see this and be like, why didn't you just call? Cause yeah, it's yeah. frustrating to know in hindsight yeah. what was happening and that the police probably could have helped. But yeah, it also makes me wonder if this was a common thing because I have had neighbors in the past where they're very loud at late hours. And for the most part, I try to ignore them because they do it so often. I have no idea if that's what was happening here, if he's just like, because, I mean, there were three boys aged 10, 9, and 7, so I'm sure there was actually probably a lot of rambunctiousness, I guess. Yeah, I would say that. The boy running out the yard and getting dragged back in, I guess you could maybe mistake that as just the boys are up really late when they shouldn't be and they're they're messing around, they're roughhousing. But I feel like the difference between someone screaming for their life and someone screaming just because they're playing or wrestling with their brother would be different. 
you know, I hate to say it, but a woman would know immediately. (laughs) A woman would know immediately. (laughs) That something was wrong. Yeah. I just feel like you'd be able to to hear the difference in the screams, especially so late at night, because it was a little after midnight, right? Like, it would be weird for the boys to be up that late anyway, like, even if they did stay up later. And I'm assuming it was probably a school night. No, because it was November 24th, so it was probably Thanksgiving. Well, it was um, it was a Sunday night going into Monday, so uh, it wouldn't uh, have been Thanksgiving. No. They was... would have had school the next day, and actually, I reached out to some of the people who remember this crime, and I had a woman... I won't name her. I think she wants to stay anonymous. But she messaged me and said that she was in Wiley Jr.'s elementary school class. They were in fifth grade together. And she still remembers and it still haunts her because she was friends with Wiley Jr. And she remembers being in school and them saying, like, he's not coming back. And she described him as being a very quiet and very smart young boy. Not someone who, like, stirs up a bunch of trouble. Yeah. Harold Williams was seen at the Alachua General Hospital by Dr. Summerlin at about 4.30 a.m., who described his condition as critical. His body had 32 stab wounds from top to bottom. He had suffered acute blood loss, one of the stab wounds being in the heart and one penetrating the stomach, liver, and diaphragm. Open chest surgery was required for repair of the three-quarter inch wound in the right ventricle of his heart. The wounds to his stomach were repaired. In the course of the medical procedures, he suffered cardiac arrest requiring heart massage to restore the heartbeat. Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of a heart massage? I've literally never heard of a heart massage. I don't know what that is. I imagine it's it's like the the things. What are they oh, called? The, defib- the defibrillator? Yeah, the defibrillator. That's what I thought of. And I was like, why would they call it heart massage? But uh, maybe I just don't know what the heck that is. I wonder if maybe they're using an old timey word. I'm going to look it up really quick. Okay. Yeah, but it sounds like his... So Harold is the nine-year-old. He's the second oldest son, and he's in critical condition. He's been stabbed 32 times and obviously has lost a lot of blood and to the point where one of the stab wounds, which is a three-quarter inch wound in his heart, has stopped his heart completely. So they're having to revive him. That's how bad his condition is. Okay, a cardiac massage is cardiopulmonary resuscitation, so that can be like chest compressions or the uh, the defibrillator, artificial ventilation. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so they, essentially they revived him. The youngest son, seven-year-old Andrew Williams, had two stab wounds in his chest, one of which caused a collapsed lung. He had several lacerations on his face, lacerations on his left thigh, lacerations on the left knee, and a laceration to the right side of his chest. The body of 10-year-old Wiley Williams Jr. contained only two wounds, one on the left side of his chest, which passed through his heart and into his liver, and one in his abdomen near the belly button. He had bled to death from the heart wound. Wounds on the body of 27-year-old Anna Williams were described as too numerous to count. She had at least 15 wounds in the left breast, which were described as slash wounds, causing it to nearly be severed. There were wounds literally all over her body, and they were made by two different knives, one a smaller knife, approximately one quarter inch wide, and one inflicting wounds three quarters of an inch wide and approximately six inches long. Her official cause of death was hemorrhaging from the numerous stab wounds she received. Okay, I want to talk about the different wounds that the bodies received. I know it's really gory, but there is, I think, really important information to be assessed because based on what happened to them and the violence that they received, I think it tells you a little bit about what the intentions of the perpetrator were, maybe who the main targets were. Yeah, whoever killed Anna was angry. Like, this is 
this is overkill. Two different knives and how they couldn't even count the stab wounds because they... Yeah, so I think the main assumption, and I agree with it, you can let me know if you disagree, but I think Anna, Anna the mother, was the main target of this attack. I agree with that. And the very excessive violence directed specifically at her heart, at the left side of her chest, seems very purposeful. I don't know if there's like a symbolic meaning behind it. Um, actually, three of them were all stabbed directly into the heart because Anna was stabbed in the heart. Her oldest son, Wiley, he was only stabbed two times, which is insane because everyone else was stabbed excessively, like all over their bodies. Wiley Jr.'s wounds are odd to me because... He was only stabbed twice, but they were extremely fatal stabs to his abdomen and his chest. But he was also stabbed in the heart. And then Andrew, or no, sorry, Harold that we talked about earlier, who he had a three quarter inch wound, which I think is supposed to match the size of the three quarter inch knife. So there were two different knives used. One was a one quarter inch, which um, it's a really narrow knife, right? Yeah, that's a super narrow knife. That's small. How long was it? Did it say? We don't know. It never said how long it was. It just said it was a quarter inch wide. Is that like a stiletto? What what is that? Like measuring that on my finger, that's like a a freaking ice pick, not a knife. Yeah, that one really confuses me and I don't know how to interpret it if, and I don't think they recovered that knife. I don't think any of the murder weapons were recovered. So I'm just trying to figure out what that even was and I'm probably I'm sure someone smarter than me is like obviously it's this Hannah okay well I have I actually have a question so it seems all of the boys were stabbed with the six inch long knife the larger knife right but not the smaller knife or we don't know so for sure Harold said that the I'm, I'm trying to figure it out I don't think we know for sure I know that Harold the the wound in his heart was the three quarter inch wound so mm-hmm. that's the six inch long knife it doesn't say what was used on Wiley or Andrew and then they know for a fact that Anna was stabbed with two different knives. Well, the only reason I ask or or think it might be relevant in any way is because if the main target of this attack was Anna and they brought the smaller knife basically to torture her, like not to kill her yet, but but make to threaten her or something. To threaten her or just make it the killing drawn out as long as drawn and drawn out as possible so it was miserable for her so they stabbed her with the small knife first and then they were going to kill her make it fatal with the larger knife if for whatever reason that seems really sadistic but i mean the killing was really sadistic in every way like all of it was and so if all the boys were stabbed with the larger knife it i guess in my brain it would say okay they were trying to kill the boys just to kill them get them out of the way and then the real target was anna which was torture and and then to eventually murder her yeah no i and i think the assumption by police and i'm i can't remember if i read this somewhere but i believe the boys were all sleeping because obviously it was like between midnight and 1 a.m so it sounds like someone either broke in or was let in i don't know if it was someone that she knew right somehow a man gets into the house and i believe the kids awoke because they heard the struggle from their mom they heard their mom arguing or screaming and fighting someone and i think they woke up and then essentially just a massive attack happened where suddenly the perpetrator doesn't have just one victim. He's got an adult and three 
medium-sized children, you know? Because, I mean, a 10-year-old, that's a child, but it's still a child that could, could fight could fight you. You know, Wiley might have been trying to defend his mom. Yeah, and, I mean, Wiley ran out of the house. He was trying to get help. And actually, um, the neighbor, it doesn't say it here, but um, the neighbor that Wiley Sr., ran to was actually Anna's mother. Anna's mother lived across the street. But how close across the street is, I'm not sure because this is a rural area. So I don't think it's like the suburbs where you've got a house just like a quick jaunt, like a 10 second walk across the street. It's probably like, you know, down the lane or whatever. I guess that would make sense. Your your brain is in shock. You're, you know that family will will help and understand and yeah. And here's the other thing that is actually really important to this case, and we don't know the answer to it. Nobody does except the people who did it. There is some speculation that there were, there was more than one perpetrator, possibly two perpetrators, but there's no evidence to back that up. There's so little evidence in this case that it's entirely possible, but it's pure speculation. Um, the boys only described seeing one person in their house. Neither of um, the surviving boys, Harold or Andrew, described there being multiple men or multiple people. But it's possible that even if there were, they wouldn't have been and see them anyway. Yeah. So we don't know. um, But the assumption is that there was only one because only one specific man was seen. And we'll talk about him later. That's crazy, though, because, yeah, actually, now the more I think about it, the two different knives theory with two different people makes sense. But why did they want, why did they kill Anna like that? Like, I don't understand why they were, like, that seems like a super violent, angry crime. I don't understand. Honestly, I think your original theory is the one that I feel the most drawn to is that I think somebody broke in. Anna was the target. They were planning to probably sexually assault her and maybe beat her or torture her. And they, I don't know if they brought the knife, that small quarter inch knife because they were planning on using it or it might just be an everyday carry knife that they just had. Yeah. Like a pocket, it could be a pocket knife. Yeah. Right, because pocket knives, they have those tiny little blades. Yeah, that's, oh, that's true, yeah. It could just be something that they had on them. There's people, there's lots of people who they just have a knife on them that they carry around for, like, this is farm area. You got to have a knife on you if you're like, you know, uh, what are they called? Like cutting twine and stuff. I don't know, like off of hay bales. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. And I completely forgot about little, for some reason in my brain, this this really thin knife was long and thin, even though that makes no logical sense. It makes more logical sense that it was a little pocket knife. Yeah. So my theory is maybe that it was just someone was targeting Anna. They had a small knife on them. They were just being sadistic. And it sounds like she put up a fight and her sons woke up and then the perpetrator probably was like, well, this little pocket knife isn't going to do the job anymore. I've got to kill all these witnesses went completely psycho. And so the three quarter inch knife, um, Wiley Sr. later said that uh, there was one missing from their kitchen. Oh. So there's there was a knife missing from their kitchen, according to Wiley Sr., because the police asked him, like, because they couldn't find the murder weapon, right? And they're like, hey, do you know of a three quarter inch knife that's six inches long? And so he looked in his kitchen and said, we have one probably about that size and it's missing. So it sounds like the perpetrator just took the one from their kitchen and used it. Yeah, he only came with a teeny little pocket knife. Does that, okay, that kind of also makes me think that maybe he wasn't planning on killing, killing everyone. Yeah. <sighs> Anna wasn't killed swiftly. So it wasn't about the murder. It was about the pain. It was about the suffering. It was, it was sadistic. 
Yeah, like, did did they have any enemies? Like, did Wiley Sr. have anybody who he was having issues with? Like, longtime rivals? What about Anna? Like, any... I mean, she was with Wiley for a long time, so I don't understand. Yeah, and I mean, women do get randomly attacked just by men who hate women. It's true. That's true. But... Yeah, but, um, I mean, the first place that police would want to go and want to look is to see the people closest to them. Yeah. Right? Because this is, this seems like a very personal attack. Extremely personal. Like, really intimate. And I can't help but it, it bothers me that Wiley specifically stated that before he left for work that he locked the doors behind him. That the house was locked up, like, for the night and the family was planning on staying in. So there's like no reason for the, if someone had gotten in, they would have either had to have broken in or had to have been let in. According to an article in the Naples Daily News from November 26th, 1974, there looked to be a struggle. The furniture in the house was upset and the bunk bed in the boys' room was thrown on top of one of the boys. It appears the boys were asleep when they heard their mother fighting. Most likely, the man probably killed the kids to keep from being identified. Because nine-year-old Harold Williams was in critical condition after being so viciously attacked, it was crucial for investigators to get as much information from him as possible in case he passed away. In sworn statements from Harold's doctor, Dr. Glenn Summerlin, Harold was in serious condition and probably wouldn't be able to testify in court, which is why Circuit Judge T.A. Yon signed an order to preserve Harold's testimony. To prevent the failure of justice, the deposition of the youth could be taken, but only in the presence of the defendant, similar to trial conditions, and, at that time, any statements by the witness must be furnished by the defense as if it were a trial situation. Okay, I want to talk about this. So, Harold is their most, I guess, credible eyewitness because he's the oldest. He's He's only nine years old. He's just suffered 32 stab wounds. At one point, his heart completely stopped and they had to revive him. But he is their best witness, essentially. So even though he's just suffered this really traumatic experience, immediately police are trying to get information out of him because they're worried that he might pass away before they can get a perpetrator named. Yes, and if if they did get information from Harold and Harold passed away, it's basically like a a last word statement, which in legal terms can or cannot be credible. And so it sounds like they wanted to make this as credible as possible. So they were having a judge sign an order to basically say like this was legit. Because of his serious condition, nine-year-old Harold Williams' statement was taped in the Alachua General Intensive Care Unit. Often incoherent and making delusionary statements, even prosecutors discounted. He told the events he remembers of the night his family was attacked, naming Jesse Raymond Rutledge as the perpetrator. So they actually, they videotaped him. So there's a, rec- there's a, video, there's a video recording of Harold Williams essentially making his witness statement so that they could play it in court. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. But he's making, as they say, delusionary statements, which, I mean, makes sense considering how much blood he's lost. And here's the thing. The reason that this situation bothers me so much, which is probably obvious to everyone listening, is that one... He's a child. He's nine years old. Getting a witness statement from a nine-year-old in the first place is already going to be a little bit shaky because they're so young. But then it compounds and gets worse when you take into consideration that he's been stabbed 32 times. He's in critical condition. He might at this point be under the influence of sedatives, drugs. Like, they're probably giving him something. I'm sure he has pain management. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. There's no way that he's probably not on some sort of pain medicine. So it just doesn't 
feel to me like anything that he says during this critical time that he's essentially dying should be admissible, but I'm also not a lawyer or a judge. Yeah. Yeah. The conditions for this are absolutely crazy. And not to mention, they probably got him interviewed like as soon as they possibly could after his surgery. And like, if you've ever had a major surgery, I don't think you're coherent for like a full two weeks after, like, cause you're on so much pain meds and you're in a ton of pain and your body just went through something traumatic. And it's not just major surgery for Harold. It's, he was almost stabbed to death. So it's, there's a lot of things happening with his poor little body as he's trying to recover. And that's probably why he was incoherent and saying things that didn't make sense to anybody. Yeah. No, it'd be weird if he wasn't making incoherent and delusionary statements. Yes. (laughs) Like if he was perfectly well composed, like I'd be like, what the heck is happening here? (laughs) (laughs) This boy's Superman. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no. So this is these are not ideal circumstances. Not in the slightest. Okay, so I want to find out, according to um, the police, he names a suspect. He names an 18-year-old man. In my heart, I want to say 18-year-old boy, because to me, 18-year-olds are still boys. They're children, yes. But I guess technically, I would say he's an 18-year-old young man named Jesse Raymond Rutledge. So can you tell me more about Jesse Raymond Rutledge? Absolutely. So 18-year-old Jesse Raymond Rutledge was a resident of the small rural community of Hawthorne, where the victims also lived. Rutledge was arrested at his home late Monday and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of assault with intent to commit murder. But police declined to elaborate on the details that led to the arrest and said the investigation was continuing. Captain Wes Schellinger of the Alachua County Sheriff's Department said that Rutledge did know the victims, although they were not social acquaintances. I I actually reached out to Jesse's family about this case because I wanted uh, their version of events. I wanted to hear what um, Jesse's alibi was. And the response that he gave me was that he personally did not know Anna Williams, the, the victim, the mother. He said that essentially this is a very small town. So even today, there's only about 1,500 people in Hawthorne, Florida, which is very small. <laughs> And um, that's like, what, like the size of a high school, maybe a little bit bigger, you know? Yeah, my high school was bigger than that town. I had like, (laughs) I think I had 2,000 people or more. Yeah, so this is is a very small rural community. He knew of her, essentially, but they were not friends. It's people, it's like, yeah, I know they're family, but it's not like we talk, right? According to Jesse, her brothers, Anna's brothers, would help his grandfather on his various farm properties, which... I mean, if you've ever lived in a small rural town, that's just kind of how it is. It's like, you know, of people. Yeah. Even if you're not friends, you're like, yeah, I know them, but not really. Yeah. That's not weird. Yeah. That's how he explained his relationship to Anna. He's like, I don't really know her, but I just, I know of her and I know her brothers, right? According to Jesse, he has claimed his innocence. He says that he was not involved in this murder whatsoever. He lived in town. He was 18 years old at the time and he was at his family's home. He said that Sunday night that the attack happened, he had been out. I don't know if he meant like if he was bar hopping, but he said he was out smoking and drinking with his cousin, Barbara Jean, and that she had dropped him back at their family home at about 11 or 11.30 that night, and that he just went to sleep. And the attack we know happened between midnight and 1 a.m. So obviously his family backs up his alibi and says, yeah, he was home and he was in his bed sleeping. But to be fair, that's not like a super strong alibi, 
because if you're in your room and the door's closed and you claim you were just sleeping, it's really hard to corroborate that because theoretically it's like, oh, he could have just slipped out his window and nobody would know and he could have committed these crimes. The defense, in examination of of investigators, brought out Harold's original statement where he only identified his attacker as one of Scoopy's boys, the name of a band of young Hawthorne men. Rutledge's name was picked out by the nine-year-old as the deputies read off a list of those known to hang out with that group. Okay, so I don't really have a ton of information about this, but what we find out is that Harold identified the perpetrator as one of Scoopy's boys, which... I don't know who Scoopy is or how he got the name Scoopy, but I guess Scoopy's Boys is referring to a band or you might say like a gang of men who are known around town, I think, to commit petty crimes. So when Harold doesn't know the name of his attacker, the police essentially supply him with a list of names and say, was it any of these men or which of these men was it? I don't know how they phrased it. I don't know how coercive they were. I don't know if they were hoping that he would choose a specific one, which police have been known to do. But essentially they gave him a list and that's how he came up with Jesse's name. He didn't know it off the top of his head. And Jesse also, um, I don't know exactly the details of it, but apparently at this time, the reason that he's even on this list and that police know who he is is because he's on parole for a burglary. Okay, so they were like, oh, that matches. That's our suspect without even continuing on the list. He just matched the name. He had a burglary charge. And so he was the suspect. Well, it's not entirely random or even out of the ordinary for police to be like, okay, this somebody broke into this house and committed a crime. Who do we know who has a history of this? And it's a very small town. So they probably didn't have a super long list. And they're like, and I think that's typical for police to start with already known perpetrators. Like these are the people who have been in jail recently or who have committed crimes recently. Let's start with them. The problem is, is that Jesse doesn't have any motive in this case. He did not know Anna. He was not really familiar with her. And from what we said earlier, it looks like a very personal attack. It seems like someone really wanted her to not just die, but to suffer. And as far as we know, the house wasn't actually burgled. Like nothing was taken. Exactly. It doesn't match his past crimes. And it's a big jump from being a burglar to a sadistic killer. Exactly. That's what I wanted to say. I was like, burglars don't commit heinous murders just because like that's that's not how this works it like somebody who's capable of like sexual assault or like domestic violence to me is capable of heinous murders like this but not burglars like i yeah, it's just two very different crimes yes I, that, that that makes me angry okay we'll we'll continue on so you can hear the rest of the story Investigator Ray Huckabee stated scrapings found under Anna Williams' nails were sent to the FBI lab and assumed to be human flesh, but Rutledge had been stripped for a close inspection and showed no signs of any scratches on his body. Okay, you would have to have some type of defensive wounds on your body if you had committed this crime. Like, absolutely. Like, the boys fought back. Anna fought back. You would have to have defensive wounds, especially because Anna was stabbed so many times and presumably kept alive for at least 23 minutes that we can hear on the phone, right? She Mm -hmm. fought back. Like, I, there would be defensive wounds undeniably without, especially since, like, Anna was potentially sexually assaulted. Like, 
Yeah. For sure. So that makes no sense that Jesse doesn't have any defensive wounds on his body if he did it. He has absolutely nothing, which is why as we get even further and we learn more, it makes no sense that he could have committed this crime because there would be something. At least something. Especially since he's arrested immediately. Like this is less than 24 hours later. And there would be like no, like he would have some traces of DNA left on his body, especially, you're right, in that short amount of time between the time this was committed and the time he was arrested. Like, I'm sure his room was searched. There would probably be blood or DNA in his room. Like, it was a bloody murder. Oh my God. Okay, okay, let's continue on. The state presented no other testimony except the videotape of Harold to put Rutledge at the scene, and Rutledge and his attorneys stated that he was with his family the night of the murders which again, as we said, isn't a super awesome defense or alibi, but it is what it is. Polygraph examinations administered to Jesse and came back inconclusive. But we all know that polygraph is kind of bunk science anyway, so it all comes back inconclusive. If I even hear that someone has passed, failed, or had an inconclusive polygraph examination, I just ignore it for the most part. Same. I'm like, cool. Like, to me, it just feels like someone, you know, just handed me a bunch of junk science and was like, do you want to look at this? And I'm like, no, I don't. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know? Where's like, the real shit I, that I can look at? I just ignore it. Like, to me, this, it's not even worth taking into consideration. Yeah, I feel like, um, I bet you they knew that they're kind of shit science, but it helped sway public opinion in in a huge way, I bet you, because it was just like, oh, a polygraph test. And nobody knows, like, random people don't know the ins and outs of polygraph science, right, and how it works or what that means. But we hear that it's a lie detector test and we automatically are like, oh, that's really, like, that's crazy. We have science to detect lies and, and the general public just falls for it. So what also I was just thinking today actually about is that Jesse, he has every reason for this test to come back inconclusive because not only is he young, like he's only 18. So to me, he's still like a young man or a boy. Some of the tactics that police use to try and trick you into like falsely confessing and things, he would have been a prime target for this. He would have been vulnerable to falsely confessing. What's insane is that he never does. He never falsely confesses. He maintains his innocence throughout all of this. The jury of four men and eight women returned its verdict late Tuesday afternoon on November 4th, 1975, a year after the attack. After deliberating for about five hours, Jesse Raymond Rutledge was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of assault with intent to commit murder. So what evidence (laughs) at all was he convicted on? Because this seems insane to me. So... I'm assuming since they didn't have DNA technology at this time, there was just a lot of dependence on circumstantial evidence, but even that is lacking because Jesse had no connection to the family. He didn't even know Anna. We don't even know if they've ever talked or met, right? Basically, the entire prosecution was based on the testimony of Harold Williams and his testimony from his hospital bed. Did Harold survive? Yes. Okay. There's just a lot of a lot of factors. Okay, we'll continue on so I can tell you all of the physical evidence they f- they found at the scene to support convicting Jesse. During the course of the trial, which lasted a week and a half, Assistant State Attorney Ken Herbert developed his case around the eyewitness testimony of surviving son Harold, the polygraph test results, and the discovery of uncommon bean-type blood at the murder scene. The prosecutor suggested the motive for the stabbings was 
sadistic, nothing else. Yeah. So like I, I literally work in a blood bank. Oh, okay. Well, professional on the case here. Well, no, I'm not a professional, but I'm just saying, I don't think we've ever run out of type B. Like we've run out of B negative, uh, AB negative. Uh, but like, if it's just, if he's just B positive, I would not, I would not call that a rare blood type. Okay. So right here on Google, it says that about 10% of people belong to blood group B, making it one of the least common blood groups. Yes. If it was someone with like O negative or AB negative, that would be much more of a smoking gun. This is like, it's rare, but not. And they didn't even have like an exact blood, uh, what's it called? An exact blood profile for the blood found at the scene either, right? Like it was just B type blood, not even. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't know the RH. They just said type B. And if they had been a little bit more exact in the court documents, I wish they would have said if it was B positive or B negative, because B negative is significantly more rare. And that makes more sense that you might be like, whoa, he's B negative. What are the odds? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, technology's come a long ways. And now we can actually say if it was his specific blood or not found at the scene. But this blood found at the scene and the scrapings underneath Anna's fingernails, they have never been tested. That, that's fucked up, plain and simple. Plain and simple. Why, okay, why didn't they redo that? What Has Jesse ever, like, petitioned for a retrial? So all of his appeals have been denied. Um, he's been in prison now for almost 50 years. But here's the thing. If they think that they caught someone and they feel like they have the right guy and a jury found him guilty, why would you, why would the state, right, from their perspective, why would you spend money to just further this case when it's already closed? Like, so you know for sure. Oh my God, I hate that. No, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the biggest problems. Like with our justice system, it's like, it's all about money. I mean, they don't want to spend money that they don't have to. They have a limited budget. So if you convict someone or if you get a false confession from someone, your hands are clean, you're done. You can just lock them up and then you move on to the next case. That is so royally fucked. I hate it so much. And they couldn't even come up with a motive for him. The one that they come up with was just, they said, sadistic. Sadism. Yep. It's, they're like, we don't know why he did this. He doesn't even know this woman, but we think that he broke in and sadistically assaulted her and severely stabbed her and all of her children just because he's a sadist and he likes causing people pain. They really do not give a fuck about logic, do they? Like, <laughs> in the slightest. It gets worse. Okay, let's tell them about how it gets worse. (laughs) Good God. On the day the jury was supposed to decide Rutledge's sentencing, Assistant State Attorney Ken Herbert played portions of the horrific 911 call, which jurors were not permitted to hear earlier as evidence in the trial. The screams and cries on tape were so upsetting that some people had to walk out of the courtroom. That seems not right either. They don't even know if this guy did it. They're... Who was Jesse's representation? Why why were they not allowed to hear it? And then why did the judge allow it later before the sentencing? I I literally don't understand. Maybe a lawyer could explain this to me. But yeah, the 911 phone call was not permitted into evidence. They were not allowed to play it for the jury, but they were allowed to randomly just play it right before the jury is supposed to decide his sentencing. So obviously they hear this horrific phone call It's very upsetting. It would be upsetting to anyone. And so, of course, as soon as they hear it, they're going to be unnecessarily put all of this horrible emotion onto Jesse and it's going to affect his sentencing. Like they have no evidence whatsoever that Jesse did it. None. 
Like, it's all circumstantial at best. Even the circumstances don't really point to No, them. they don't line up and they don't make sense. So it it, it seems like legally, uh, f- for lack of a better term, <laughs> legally f- that they allowed this. Like, they just couldn't bring it in as evidence, but they were allowed to play it in general as part of, like, their closing s- statement or something. Like, yeah, that is, that is not okay. I mean, it was really smart on the prosecution's end because they want to just... Super, yeah. They want to nail this coffin shut and they're like, okay, and here we go. And that would do it. it worked. Yeah, that would obviously do it, 100%. After only two hours of deliberation, the jury recommended death by electric chair. Rutledge maintained his innocence throughout the entire trial and sentencing proceedings and sat motionless as the verdict was read. His state-appointed attorney felt that his client's conviction was lacking evidence, especially enough evidence to warrant the death penalty. There was also the completely unexplored possibility that a second person had taken part in the crime. Despite his best efforts, Jesse's defense attorney, James G. Fiber Jr., was unable to get his conviction overturned, but he was able to get 400 signatures from Hawthorne residents, urging the death penalty to be taken off the table. He argued that the description of the attacker given by Harold Williams more accurately fit a man named Charles Sonny Bessett, whom Miss Williams had once complained beat and sexually assaulted her. He charged that Alachua County authorities were embarrassed by the killings and desperate to solve them because deputies listened helplessly to cries of terror during the attack and couldn't trace the call. This is really important. Yes. So earlier when we were talking about the attacks and how Jesse doesn't know Anna, um, it feels like a very personal attack. It seemed very targeted and very sadistic. It makes more sense that the person who did this was someone familiar to her and had a grudge against her possibly even having a history of violence against her. And apparently there was a man named Charles Sonny Besant, whom Anna had previously reported to police for beating and sexually assaulting her. Why the hell didn't they look into that? Because again, they had Harold's testimony that it was Jesse. They had a man in custody and to them that was good enough. And it worked. I mean, they got a jury to convict this man and the case was closed. He was given a death sentence and Charles Sonny Besant was never investigated. Even though the eyewitness account from Andrew and Harold both described a man with a mustache and a missing tooth, which is a very specific description. And it doesn't match Jesse. It actually matches Charles Sonny Besant, the man who has a history of violence toward the victim. Oh my fucking God. Oh my God. I, how do you, how do you trust the police to do fucking anything? Like we, they, I feel like this was very straightforward if they had cared about the actual facts of the case rather than patching this up really quick to, to make themselves look good and do it in a really easy way because Harold said a name and therefore this was super easy case for them. And it just seems like the worst part of this is the timeline. So this all happened and Jesse was arrested all within 24 hours. Like the the crime was committed about midnight. So very beginning of the day. By the end of that day, that evening on Monday, Jesse was in handcuffs. Here's the other thing that bothers me. Okay, there's a lot of things that bother me. But the prosecution's argument doesn't make sense that just because it was Jesse's blood type found at the crime scene because we already know that they stripped him down and he didn't have any wounds on his body. 
Exactly. How would you how would you explain a man's blood being at a crime scene when where would the blood come from? Where is it coming out of? Yep. He has no defensive wounds. They should be looking for someone who has a history of violence toward the victim, someone known to her, someone who would want to do this and had motive to do this, someone who currently has probably scratches and cuts all over his body, who has a mustache and a missing tooth and has probably fled town. But I'm not a police officer. I'm not a fucking professional, but sounds like I could be. (laughs) This is so fucking sad. Jesse is still in prison and he's been in prison for 50 years. He's been in there. He's he's my mom's age. He is now 60, what, 66 years old? He was 18 years old when his whole life was taken away from him because the police found it convenient. In a rare move in 1982, the clemency board asked the parole commission to reinvestigate Jesse Rutledge's conviction since Charles Sonny Besant had been identified so publicly as the probable killer. Prosecutor Kenneth Herbert said that the defense knew about Besant at the time of the trial, but didn't mention it to the jury. He also didn't deny that Besant might have been involved, saying it was entirely possible that Rutledge had an accomplice, noting that seven-year-old Andy Williams described an assailant with a mustache and a missing tooth, which did not describe Jesse Rutledge, so the boys may have seen two different men. One theory for motive by the prosecution was that Rutledge broke into the Williams' home at a time he was on probation for breaking into another home and possibly killed them to keep from jeopardizing his freedom. The reason that I don't think that this is what happened, because they're arguing that Jesse had a history of burglary, right? So they're like, okay, so maybe he killed these people because he broke into their home and when they woke up, he had to kill them. If you're burglarizing someone's home, you don't kill someone like this. No. In 1983, Florida Governor Bob Graham commuted Jesse Rutledge's death sentence to life imprisonment. The sparse news reports indicate that the governor may have been influenced by the possibility that another man, Charles Sonny Besant, more closely matched the description of the suspect. The victim had previously complained that Besant had beaten and sexually assaulted her, although it is not absolutely certain when the information about Rutledge's innocence emerged, two attorneys who represented Rutledge believed that the evidence about Besant's possible involvement was known at the time of the trial. Currently, Jesse Raymond Rutledge has been incarcerated for almost 50 years. Both of his parents have since passed away. Wiley Williams Sr. joined his wife and son in death in 2016, but as distant as 1974 may seem today, the small town of Hawthorne, Florida still carries the sorrow of this crime every day. Anna Williams' mother is still alive and still misses her daughter. Wiley Jr.'s fifth grade classmates still think about him and remember how they felt when they learned he wouldn't be coming back to school. For others, the quick arrest and conviction of 18-year-old Jesse Rutledge was a reminder that the town was heavily controlled by a few major groups, and if you didn't want to get on their bad side, it was best to keep your head down. Jesse's family still holds out hope that one day he can be exonerated and return home. The reason that this case caught my attention is because I was reading the newspaper archives and I came across this like full-page newspaper article, and it, I believe it was the current pictures of all of the Florida inmates on death row. So obviously it caught my attention because I was looking through the newspapers and suddenly there's just this big wall of all these men's pictures. And so it had all these men's pictures in alphabetical order. And then beneath their picture, it had just a quick summary of their crime. And so I was kind of going through reading, reading, reading. And then I get to one really particularly heinous crime, the murder of, it said it was a double homicide 
you know, a mother and her child. And I just immediately was like, what kind of monster could do this? After reading it, I looked up at his picture and I expected to just see a monster, right? Someone with crazy eyes or just looked really awful, you know, but I saw the picture of Jesse and I know you can't tell from looking at someone if they're a monster or not. You can't tell by looking at someone if they're a sociopath or if they're capable of murder. And I know that and I'm not arguing that. But I looked at his picture and he just had the saddest looking eyes. He just looked like a broken man. And it intrigued me enough that I felt like I needed to learn more about the case. So I was like, how did this happen? What led to this crime, right? How did Jesse know them? Why did he do this to them? And so when I started to read the court documents, when I started to read the newspaper articles, I got about halfway through and none of the evidence was stacking up. I think this man is innocent. And so I did everything I could to try and look him up, see if, was he ever exonerated? Did the charges ever get dropped? Because to me, after looking at all of the facts of the case, it seemed very obvious that this was a miscarriage of justice. And so I reached out to him. I, I found him in the prison system and I emailed him and I didn't get a response and I kind of forgot about it for a while. But this last week, it kept bothering me and I felt like I needed to pursue it more. And I reached out to his hometown. I made a, a post on his local Facebook group to see if anyone had any information, if anyone remembered the crime. And it turns out that everyone remembers this crime. It has left a huge gaping hole in this community. A lot of people were affected. A lot of families are still grieving the loss of you know the Williams family and it's caused a lot of pain. But in addition to that pain, we also have the pain of Jesse's family who they believe he's innocent. He's maintained his innocence and I wanted to try and help them in any way that I could. And the only way I knew of doing that would be potentially the Innocence Project. So anyone unfamiliar with the Innocence Project, cases like Jesse's are a perfect example of eligible cases where there is DNA evidence that has never been tested that could possibly exonerate someone. And we know from this case that there was blood and there were fingernail scrapings. So Jesse's case would be eligible. So this past week I filled out an application and I wrote a letter and I mailed it off to the Innocence Project. And right now it's probably just still in transit, but um, we will probably do an updated episode if and when we hear back from them. My hope is that they can help Jesse, that that DNA can get tested and we can finally get him exonerated, assuming that he is innocent, or if he's not, we'll know the truth. Crime Soup listeners, please sign the Change.org petition organized by Jesse's nephew. We're going to link it in the description and on social media. Also, Hannah wrote a letter to the governor of Florida to petition him to exonerate Jesse. If you feel so inclined to do the same, I'm sure Jesse's family would appreciate it. As always, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on social media and let us know your thoughts on this case. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at crime underscore soup and on TikTok at crime soup podcast. Tune in next Tuesday for your next helping of delicious crime soup. Bon appétit!